Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We take our attachment style as an adult and we basically replace our primary caregiver as a child with our adult romantic relationship. So, you know, what your relationship was to your major caregiver becomes so many of the unresolved wounds and fears and issues that you'll have um, as an adult. And so our attachment style originally forms between the ages of zero to two years old, but literally our attachment style will stick with us and continue to influence us for decades for our entire life until we learn how to actually go in and subconsciously reprogram what may not be serving us anymore. All three of the insecure attachment styles on some level struggled with attunement. Attunement is us, when we do that with ourselves, we are giving to ourselves what we couldn't gain access to as children. And so what we're essentially doing is we're becoming our parent in the relationship to ourselves. And that's how we heal, is to give to ourselves what we couldn't get access to. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution. I'm your humble host, Amrit Sandhu, and you're tuning in to a conscious conversation designed to help you grow. Our mission here is simple. It's for you to live your purpose, live your best life, live the life you love. This podcast is sponsored by Enthusiasm for Life, by great creation itself. To keep the good vibes flowing for myself and yourself, do us a solid, subscribe to the Inspired Evolution podcast on YouTube the home of the Inspired Evolution podcast. Now sit back, relax, open your mind, open your heart to this conversation and stay inspired. Keep evolving. Welcome back to the Inspired Evolution. And we have with us Inspiring Our Evolution today, Thais Gibson. Thais, how are you, babe? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. 
Oh my God, it is our pleasure to have you here. It is such a treat. For those tuning into Thais for the first time, she's an author, she's a speaker. She truly is a leader in the personal development space. She's got an MA, BA, she's certified in 13 different personal certifications. She runs her own company, which is the Personal Development School. If you haven't checked it out on YouTube, please go check out some of her videos. Her client base has continued to experience significant life transformations. She covers things across a various dynamic range of things. But fundamentally for me, the things I keep finding myself going back to her videos for are the subconscious mind, um, how to really work and reprogram the subconscious mind. And then relationship dynamics is a big thing that I find her channel really supports me with. Um, And within there, really at the heart of it, I feel like there's a lot of attachment theory stuff. Am I off the mark with the subconscious mind relationship theory and the attachment theory stuff on the mark for sure am i being too specific because i know the personal development school is quite broad as well so sorry is that that's what i get no that's that's the vast majority of the content it's funny because we sort of started off more broad and then over time like you could see our audience really wanted to stay in like the attachment styles the subconscious the reprogramming so that is the vast majority of our content now for sure yeah so tell us a little bit about that let's go there Thais, because yeah like you said personal development is a very large field and yet you're like really circling in homing in on attachment theory one of my um friends that i had on the podcast a few years ago now valan Carden, we did an amazing conversation and well, even if I say so myself, pardon me. <laughs> um, he, um, but one of the things he said and really has stuck with me is like, you know, you do all this personal development work, Amrit, you do all this like, you know, spiritual growth work. What's it really for? And the question kind of, kind of got me um, off guard, unawares at the time. And I was like, oh, that's a good question. Like, I guess to be a better version of myself. And he was like, dig deeper. And he kept, you know, asking the why, the why, the why. And eventually it got to the point where he was like, yeah, that's right. So ultimately that you can be a better husband, better partner, better friend for those that are around you. And it was really profound because the way he put it, he's quite spiritual. He's like, you know, your relationships can be your altar. Um, you know, the people around you are a mirror for you. And, you know, it's a really beautiful, like an altar is somewhere where you bring your true, raw, unapologetic, authentic, vulnerable self and pray, you know, and witness parts of you back to it. And I just find it quite interesting that, you know, like we've also found through, you know, the personal development schools being so broad that, yeah, the, you honing in on attachment theory as being like so fundamental to people's development and their journey and how critical a role to an individual's development relationships and attachments really can play. I'd love to ask why that became the focus of the personal development school in your own words. Uh, but then also potentially if you can throw in maybe just, you know, how we get programmed so early on for attachment um, as early children, because I've found that yeah, through your definitely. work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. So um, it's funny. So I actually started running a practice originally. So I, I was really, I think like one of the things that's, that I've always been this way since I was very young, that never changed despite whatever sort of chapter of life I was in is as soon as something is like helpful for me or useful, like I need to give it away. Like I need to tell everybody, I need to share it. I need people to know. And, and you know, I'm, I'm like that even to this day with so many things, but, but I, when I was young, I actually really struggled. So I, I came from like a, a sort of turbulent home. 
Um, I had a knee surgery. I was a, an athlete in, in for soccer and, and played soccer at a D1 school and all these different things. But um, I got injured my scouting year and I actually, I had a knee surgery and got addicted to opiates. And went on this like sort of six, seven year, like being in the trenches kind of dynamic of trying to figure out like what is going on with me because prior to that, I was sort of like high achiever and in a good place and happy. And, and so it was like, wow. And, and what I realized is like, there was so much, so much unprocessed trauma that I had been through that I was like trying to numb all the time with painkillers, like to kill pain, but psychologically in a sense. And so I, that's where I first started really learning about the subconscious mind. And I was still like, you know, fairly active. Like I was high functioning as an addict, but I, um, I, you know, struggled very, very much, but I eventually like went through school, finished that whole process. And then was like, I just want to learn everything I can about the subconscious. And as soon as I did, I just started giving free workshops to people everywhere that I could. <laughs> like, I was like, how do people not know this? Cause I, you know, after six years of really struggling, trying rehab, all these different things, I got really, I actually couldn't find results for myself. I'm not saying that that will be everybody's experience, but until I did a lot of subconscious reprogramming work and really like healed through a lot of the different traumas and unresolved emotions that I was storing and just, you know, painful experiences. And a lot of it actually came back to attachment trauma from childhood. Um, so I was a fearful avoidant attachment style. There was lots of wounds in there, a lot of big like trust wounds and fears of being vulnerable and opening up. And so it really helped me move the needle um, as a person. And then I gave all these workshops as much as I could. And originally I just started talking about the subconscious and like how to reprogram and, and sort of share these different principles. But instead it, people, as soon as I would start talking about relationships, attachment, all these different things, that's where people would really like ask the most questions and pull me in. So I ended up doing a lot of work um, in that space. I ran a practice for about eight years. It was really, really busy. And then um, eventually was like kind of teetering on burnout because I was seeing probably too many people should have had a little bit of better boundaries and was like, you know, I should package this and, and put it online. So that was sort of whole, how that experience came about. And then our attachment style um, you know, the most interesting thing about it is like, you know, we take our attachment style as an adult and we basically replace our primary caregiver as a child with our adult romantic relationship. So, you know, what your relationship was to your major caregiver becomes so many of the unresolved wounds and fears and issues that you'll have um, as an adult. And so our attachment style originally forms between the ages of zero to two years old. But literally, our attachment style will stick with us and continue to influence us for decades for our entire life until we learn how to actually go in and subconsciously reprogram what may not be serving us any longer. Man, that is so much in there that I want to dive into. And yeah, the the primary caregiver relationship, zero to two, is so profound. Um, and also... Yeah, it's it's challenging as well because you just, just sort of sit there and go, oh man, like that was so long ago. What do I do about that? And I think that sort of leads me into one of my first questions is you mentioned that um, you realized you had trauma and was it the like addictive, like addictive behavior that you were exhibiting that was the telltale sign of the symptom that you were, that you realized something was wrong? Um, how did you realize you had trauma? For those that are tuning in, how do we recognize that? Because yeah, trauma's a word that is getting used a lot in like in the zeitgeist at the moment, touch wood. But um, I think we still, some people are ready to identify it. Some people are quick to identify it. Some people don't really identify it when they, you know, potentially could. How did you identify touch wood um, that you, 
yeah, yeah. That you had some trauma. Great question. I definitely knew that I had trauma. Like we had a very volatile household growing up, a lot of like jail stuff and bad, bad divorce. And, you know, I could go into a whole bunch of things, but I want to be mindful of my parents' privacy and things like that. Of course, of course. So so there was a lot of stuff that was going on there. And I definitely very much knew that there was a very turbulent environment at home. Um, But I didn't realize, like to your point, when, when we go through things, like we think, oh, I had a hard childhood or, oh, I went through some difficult stuff. I didn't realize the actual impact trauma was having on me as a person until I started hearing about the subconscious. So I was in a class and somebody said to me, who sort of became like a mentor to me in my life after, um, the the conscious mind can't outwill or overpower the subconscious mind. And for anybody who's ever struggled with any form of addiction and who's cared to try to get over it, that's the worst part of it, in my opinion, is that every day you tell yourself, this is it, I'm done, I'm not doing this again, I'm stopping this, and then you repeat the behaviors, and you feel like, what the heck is going on with me that I, I can't control myself at all? And for me, it was so like powerful to hear that, because I felt like for five or six years at that point, I had been going what's wrong with me? Why can't I get through this? Why can't I change? And, you know, delete people's number from my phone who I would get things from and avoid and try to do all the things that you think you can outwill and just go back to the same pattern of like being stuck, being stuck, being stuck, repeating the pattern and feeling so helpless. So when somebody said that to me, it was like, oh my gosh, this isn't me being weak and not able to control myself. This is like the mechanism of how my mind is working. And so What that led to is one of the first things I learned is that to be able to observe your subconscious patterns, you have to sit and meditate so you can observe your thoughts. And I sat down to meditate for the first time and I like read about it and like watched a YouTube video online and I was young, like I was like 19 or something. And I sat down and I started observing my thoughts and I sat there and I heard myself go, you're going to fail at this. Like you fail at everything. This will never work for you. This, and I heard myself just be so mean to myself. And I was like, Oh my goodness, I'm trying to numb my internal world all the time. I'm trying to numb this. I'm trying to escape this, this like junk that's going on in my mind. And because it was the first time I was observing my thoughts rather than just identifying with them, it was this opportunity to see like, wow, this is what, this is how trauma has impacted me because I saw a lot of fighting. I saw a lot of like harsh language and realizing that I had really internalized that. And my, you know, internal dialogue became the internalized dialogue that I was exposed to growing up and that I was still carrying all of that within me and then trying to escape, trying to numb. It just made everything make sense. And so that's how I would say, like, I really noticed the impact of trauma on me as a person. Um, and it really like all clicked into place in that moment. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is, yeah, I really appreciate your vulnerability in sharing that. And I, well, we had Bruce Lipton on the podcast, uh, Epigenetics, um, and he he talks about, I love this metaphor. It's so infuriating and you described it just before as well. It's so hard to reprogram, to get your conscious mind to do something for you when your subconscious is like willed another way let's put it that way and he, he describes it as like the ant on the elephant's back it's like you know you're you're and the ant is like trying to go north it's like let's go north and the elephant's like moving south but the ant is going north your conscious mind but the subconscious is going south <laughs> you know? and then you're just like trying your heart out to try and implement change i'm going north i'm going north oh are you really so that metaphor's always really stuck with me and i, I heard it as you were sharing um what you were sharing as well how did you go about um, 
reprogramming your subconscious mind because there's so many different um, approaches. I love that you identified what was going on through meditation. Obviously, it's one of my favorite practices. And yeah, it's not for the faint of heart, um, being able to sit there and witness what's coming up because sometimes it can drive you away just as much as it can illuminate you, right? It can be like, oh, I'm really hard on myself and I don't really like going into this space to see how hard I am on myself. But it was beautiful that you were able to witness, you know, your negative self-talk and be like, hey, this is uh, potentially why I'm, you know, like I can see that this is obviously what's up and I'm also trying to numb out a lot of this relationship with self. Um, How did you, from that point, start? Obviously, you know, you found some, yeah, what, what did you find? So I love this topic. I mean, this is a really broad topic. We, we There's about 20 like major tools that that um, I use for reprogramming. But how I started was basically with something called auto-suggestion. So like when you think of the conscious mind, the conscious mind speaks through language, but the subconscious does not speak through language. So it speaks through emotion and imagery. So for example, if I say to you, and you probably know this, but if I say to you, like, whatever you do, do not think of the pink elephant, like your subconscious just thinks of it. Like it, it can't, so your subconscious doesn't really hear. I was at the, the gym yesterday, not. sorry to butt in, and I was doing wall holds. Like, I don't know, when you sit and squat against the wall and you're doing wall holds and my personal trainer was like, don't think about your legs, don't think about your legs. And I was like, that doesn't work. Like, all I can think about is my legs. So, yes, totally understand the purple elephant, <laughs> the pink elephant metaphor. Um, yeah, sorry, I interrupted. I that. yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. But um, so you'll see, right? So, so. Um, in that space, you know, I originally, like the first thing I learned at the time is like, oh, affirmations. And then I was like, wait, affirmations don't really work because affirmations are all language. And so um, there's a form of auto-suggestion that I sort of like adapted and played with, but eventually it's like, what you do is whatever you're trying to overcome. So let's say it's like, I'm not good enough, for example. Okay. So what's the opposite? I'm good enough. And then I have to somehow get that good enough to then speak in emotion and imagery so that it's landing at the subconscious level. And so what I found is that memories are a container of emotion and imagery. So if I were to say to you, for example, tell me your a memory you recently have of where you actually felt proud of yourself. You felt good enough about something you did or proud. When you would tell me about the memory, the emotions contained there. And if you, if you actually pay really close attention to your mind, your mind flashes the images of the memory. So what I would do is I would take this idea that we have to use repetition plus emotion. So if it's, I'm not good enough, okay, I am good enough. And I come up with 10 pieces of evidence a day. So evidence being the memory and then hold that for 21 days. And that was like breakthroughs that worked extraordinarily well for me. And it was very easy to, to build momentum there. And then of course you have your reticular activating system actually focusing in on those things. So your brain adapts quite quickly to that as long as you carry it through for the 21 days or so. I love that. And I love that you've given yourself 21 days. And one of the reasons I specifically love that is because I actually do this really trippy dippy thing, um, which is when I go away on holiday and I'm having, you know, sometimes you just have those moments where you're like, oh, I'm really just rested in my being and maybe some people don't get that, but there's this, it generally happens to me on holiday. There's a couple of places like Rome near the Colosseum. I had this incredible, just, it was a perfect day. It was like 38 degrees walking around. It was just really nice. Um, and yeah, here in, um, I've got another memory from Thailand. Um, but yeah, literally on the edge of a beach. And I literally, what I do is I snapshot the moment in my mind. Like, and I actually consciously do it. Like I so I'll sit there and I'll be like, okay, let's just take in the entire moment and this will be a happy place in your mind that you can come back to in the future. And I'll literally 
create the memory um, consciously and craft it and try and like literally like it's almost like a negative in my brain producing an image, like literally like a photograph that I can sort of come back to and just the emotions in that moment. And I loved how you described that because yeah, it is quite profound. Like, and I was playing along a little bit as you were sharing and I was like taking myself back to a moment and I was like, Oh yeah, I went back to my happy place. And I was like, Oh yeah, all the emotions are literally just waiting touch wood right there in my happy place. Um, and so, yeah, I freeze frame the happy places and then I've come home and then, you know, there'll be times where I'm going through stuff and I'll be like, Oh, you know, and it's a quick little go back to your happy place. And then I'll just picture, picture myself what I was like in that holiday moment. And I do feel like, you know, sometimes part of me goes, oh, am I dissociating? And it's like, don't worry about it. And like, you know, you're actually using a tool to help you cultivate um, a state. So, yeah, that's, so that's really profound. Have, yeah, go on. Have you ever heard of the Silva method for mind control? Have you ever heard about that? Yes, I've studied it deeply. Yeah. <laughs> Have you done that, that work? Yes. I'm pretty sure I read that book. A long time ago and I'm pretty sure that was one of the techniques in that book yeah the um silver mind control is uh so we used to do intuitions on from mind uh, sorry seminars on intuition for mind valley um and that's based entirely on Jose Silva's work it's super trippy and I I try not to talk too much about it because it alienates some people um but no but no but yeah like in this space we've, we've broached a topic but like it's pretty trippy what happens in the seminar like you know you someone will hand you their car keys and you'll be holding them and it's like what color is their kitchen and you'll be like yellow and you're like what where the where did that information come from and then they're like yeah my kitchen's yellow go away I've never met you before and it's like it's really totally trippy the silver method is like wow yeah, it, I read the book but I never like really like I read about it and it was like early early for me trying to learn about the subconscious one of the like earlier tools that I found so I never went and like immerse myself but that's that's wild to hear that's, that yeah. almost makes me want to like go back and take another look all this yeah time later. well there's a really incredible um yeah on the inspired evolution channel we've got a bunch of free master classes um from like different offerings and we've paired we've partnered with mind valley to offer some master classes so yeah the intuition master classes is one of them on jose silver and it's yeah even just the master class in itself is 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 pretty cool but i really dig what you were saying about yeah the yeah just being able to access memories and use that to bring emotion back into um, your current space because, and then, yeah, go on. Oh, sorry. That Those are the three ingredients. Like repetition, emotion, imagery are the three ingredients that you need to reprogram. So doing that like allows you to really access all of those. And then I was going to say one other thing just earlier. And then the other thing I really made sure of, and it's not as much reprogramming. It's very simple though. If anybody's starting out is like, I, made a commitment to myself that like when I started seeing how bad my thoughts were to myself, how cruel they were, I was like, I, no matter what, if I hear myself doing that, if I start, like I make a mistake and I start beating myself up, I will correct it. I will say cancel and I will correct it like pattern interruption, NLP type stuff, but, but then going in and actually correcting it. And so doing the active reprogramming, but pairing that with some thought awareness throughout the day and making sure I was reframing things. Um, that just those two simple, simple tools that made a huge, huge impact. So it's a really good place for people to get started if they're newer to any of that kind of work. Yeah, it's really incredible. I love, um, the second one as well. And the second one, is it building a bridge between our conscious and unconscious? Cause one of the things I'm learning from you today is, um, even in this podcast that you said our unconscious, uh, subconscious, sorry, um, doesn't respond to language as much it's more imagery like you said repetition um and yeah so one of the key things in there is you know when you are catching yourself saying a certain thing 
um, and you go, oh, wait, that's not actually what my higher self would kind of say to me. And then you go cancel, which I dig, and you're interrupting the pattern and then you're re- rewriting it. Are you reprogramming your conscious mind or is that actually, do you think, trickling down to your subconscious through the power of repetition? Yeah, there's a repetition has an effect on reprogramming. So that's, a, a, I would say it's like tertiary um, imagery and emotion are definitely like primary and secondary. So it's less strong, but neural pathways atrophy over time. So just like muscles, like if you're not using a muscle, it atrophies. So what my commitment was, was basically to divest from the patterns that were normally firing and wiring themselves. Cause like there's a great um, line from A Course in Miracles and it says there are no idle thoughts. And when you hear this, it's like every time we think, oh, I, you know, I remember one time when I was first starting it, I missed an exit to drive somewhere. And I was like, oh, I'm such an idiot. And I, you know, giving myself this hard time. And I was like, hold on, like, I am wiring that further into my being by thinking and feeling that way about myself. And so, you know, just having the responsibility to disrupt the pattern and reframe it, you know, there's a less intense reprogramming component there compared to something like auto-suggestion and and the 21-day pieces of evidence and memory, but you're actively divesting from those things. So you're not giving the chance for those things to keep firing and wiring. And so the neural paths, the neural pathways will atrophy over time accordingly. Yeah. I love that. And as your, the old ones are atrophying, you're also building in new ones and then those become the super information highways that ping between the nodes. So that's, yeah, it's like both are happening. I love that part about neuroplasticity and that understanding, which is like, as you're building one, the other one is decaying and the new one is building. So you're actually, you know, coming at it from both ends. It's actually really cool. Attachment theory. How, yeah, you know, you said you were a fearful avoidant. Um, I did your quiz. Highly recommend people doing the quiz. Um, Very useful to find out um, what your patterns are. I also fearful avoidant. (laughs) And actually, (laughs) I I actually, and you know, when I first realized this was, and I'll, I'll, I'll make this super practical so people can tune in to realize, you know, because again, this bleeds back to how did you know that you had trauma? So I have this thing, like, I remember when I used to be in the workforce where I would, um, I had a real struggle with authority. Um, not that I would like buck up against authority, but if like my boss would say something as simple at the time as like, Hey, Amrit, um, we need to chat. Can let's book a meeting room. And I'd have to go into the meeting room and sit with my boss. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And, you know, 
I would say 95% of the time it was something positive and constructive. You know, it was like, hey, like, let's have a chat um, about, you know, this and this, how are we going to tackle this? How are we going to tackle that? But for me, 100% of the time, there was an insane amount of anxiety going into that meeting. And there was this real like, (gasps) what have I done? You know, and that feeling was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go in. I don't don't know. I'm not sure. What have I done? What have I done? And it's like, I haven't like, you know, it's not like I'm a criminal and I've done something wrong. And that was like this real rabbit hole that I started. I was like, why do I have anxiety when it comes to meetings with my boss? And it was like, ah, you know, and that's where I started stumbling across some of your work, which was like, oh, oh, like early on, I've got an interesting relationship when it comes to, you know, parenting, authority. And it's like, okay, so how have I gone ahead and learned to navigate the world? And it's like, oh, you're fearful and avoidant um, when it comes to, you know, and it's like, because it's a completely, like there's many people that will just have, you know, maybe this is the right place to also, before we dive into feeble, uh, fearful, avoidant, for you to start to describe, you know, that there is secure and then the, you know, three different types of insecure ones. Maybe let's start there before we get into fearful avoidance. Yeah, Maybe, yeah we'll go there. Start. I just want to say really quickly that that's the I am bad core wound. So we'll come back to that. But when you are naturally assuming that like you're in trouble, if you have a really strict or authoritarian parent, which can be one of the root causes for fearful avoidant attachment style, if, if there's a lot of control or, you know, more strict or severe punishments or things like that, then you're constantly lo- looking at your life through the lens of like, oh, I am bad. And so I'm about to be punished. Or so there can be this like jumping to that conclusion. And then obviously struggling with authority accordingly and, and fearful wins very much tend to struggle with authority. So um, we'll come back to all that. But but um, so there's four attachment styles for anybody who's really new to this. Um, the, the first attachment style is secure. Um, the securely attached style, essentially they get a few key ingredients in childhood. So they get um, a lot of presence from their caregivers. They get approach-oriented behaviors when they cry or express emotion. So essentially what happens is if the baby's crying, even if the caregiver doesn't know exactly what's wrong, they go towards the child, try to soothe the child or figure out what's wrong accordingly. And so the child associates and gets conditioned at a really early age to think, when I express emotion, it's safe and I get my needs met and I can trust and rely on other people. And also when they get a lot of presence, Presence is a really powerful form of love, right? Attunement, presence. And so when, when a caregiver gives that to a child, a, a, care, a child grows up to think, I am worthy. I am worthy of love and, and connection and care. And so a securely attached child also gets good lessons around giving and receiving and negotiating around needs. So, you know, a, a securely attached child at a young age, you, like let's say the child really wants candy. And it's 11 p.m. and they should have already gone to bed two two hours ago. You know, they, it doesn't mean the caregiver is going to become permissive and say, "Oh, here's the candy, and you can just stay up till whenever." They're going to say, "Hey, honey, I know you really want some candy. I know that it tastes really good. I understand." Now you have to go to bed tonight. You need to get some sleep. If you eat the candy, you're going to get a stomach ache. So tomorrow, if you eat all your healthy meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, after dinner, you can have a little bit of candy. So there's, it doesn't, there, there's a negotiation and a validation of the needs, even if the caregiver is not meeting the needs. And so it teaches this person like to have healthy, secure com- connection, communication, trust, relying on one another. So that's our secure. Research used to demonstrate Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 sorry, sorry. Keep going. Yeah, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say research used to demonstrate that about 50% of the population was secure about 20 years ago. Um, 
I would argue that that number is not only much lower, but much lower over the past 20 years, just because of, you know, so many different things that are going on and especially things related to attention, right? You know, the, the ability for people to be present when the world's so busy, social media, I think there's a, a big impact of that. So that's the securely attached style. Do you have any yeah. questions in there before I go I into did. the I did, yeah. There's so much in there, like even just the, the first one and the third one, you know, like how much is presence oriented and just, yeah, just, you know, like, the propensity we have to be stuck on our devices and our mobile phones, even as a parent, like, you know, I run the risk of like, I do it as well. You know, it's like, Oh, I should be sending off, like doing some work on the phone, like sort of replying to emails or something. Um, not while my son's screaming for me, but I know that that's bleeding into his subconscious that I'm spending time with a device over spending time with him in a moment, you know, touch wood, which is, you know, and I'm quite conscious about a lot of the decisions that I'm making most of the time. So yeah, it's, um, that's painful to hear, but also really useful also to hear. And the second point you made, which was about approach-based behavior, was really interesting because it's, um, as a parent, obviously I've got a two-year-old, so this is quite palpable for me right now. There's, you know, we're doing this dance between, yes, absolutely, we're trying to build like secure attachment, like we're, 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 we're attached to secure attachment theory as parents, is that how you put it that way? Um, and one of the things I'm conscious of though, is somewhere in the back of my head, 5% of the bandwidth is like, Ooh, are we like encouraging learned helplessness? Because there's certain points where he'll start to go into a state where he knows that we will respond to, um, him being in a state where he needs help and then we respond to the help. And so can you delineate, um, potentially help me clarify or, you know, those tuning in clarify between like the approach based approach versus learned helplessness. Um, is there a way to delineate between the two? Yeah. That's a great question. So I just want to go to your first thing first and then I'm going to go circle right back to that. But the first thing I just want to say is like, you know, the, the goal isn't to have a parent who's never on their devices, right? The goal isn't to have a parent who's like a perfect robot, <laughs> like, you know, and, and I think it's really important to acknowledge what it actually is when we look at the subconscious is it's basically like what percentage of the time. So if you're hitting 50, 50, 50% of the time you're present, 50% of the time you're really not, you know, you're probably going to get into insecure attachment territory in the very least. But if you're present 80, 85% of the time when, when you're spending one-to-one -one time with your child, and then, you know, 10, 15, even 20% of the time you, you're, you know, stuff is going on. That's creating this really stable sense of self. Like it's, it's really about like the, um, the amount that's there. So it's not that you have to be batting a hundred every single time. And, and, you know, life is, is, it would be nice if it was so simple to be that present, but I just want to acknowledge that, especially for anybody who's listening to where they're like, Oh no, I had a moment yesterday when I wasn't present and, you know, not to guilt yourself, you know, to just realize it's really about like how much of the time you're, you're able to do that. And then, um, you know, it's such a great question. So what's really interesting is that you can condition a child to, that you have the approach oriented behavior, but you can also encourage them to start doing things themselves, even though they seem like mutually exclusive things, they're not. So like, let's say for example, um, you know, your child is crying and maybe let's take a, a younger child, um, that's learning to walk and, you know, they, they're learning to walk, they're falling, um, and they're trying to, you know, they're crying, go and, and, be there and be present, but then help them back up and get them to be back on their feet doing it themselves, at, you know, from that point forward. So what you're conditioning is I am here and you can do it too. Not I'm here all the time 
or I'm absent. And it's like this sort of all or nothing kind of pattern. And it's interesting because the roots of that are actually what interdependent relationships are. So interdependent relationships are actually built on this idea that I have myself and I can do it myself and I have you and I can lean on you for support as well. And so being able to go and sort of give that to a child where you can be present with them, but then you can also encourage them, you got this, you know, and and get them to still do the behavior to pick up where they left off and correct and build the the skill and the confidence in themselves. Um, They seem like separate, separate things, but they are not mutually exclusive and they can really very much go together. I love that. Thank you so much for clarifying that. And as you're describing that, actually one of the examples that's present for me is um, because my son is at a tantruming age and uh, when he starts to throw tantrums, one of the great pieces of advice I got from a very dear friend of mine, she said she had a son who, you know, would tantrum and then instead of her combating the son and then, you know, getting into all these like, you know, issues around like, oh, you know, am I going to put him outside? And, you know, that's like, you're not attaching very well and et cetera, et cetera. Um, She found this really awesome hack around, talking to him about the tantrum as if it was a third entity. So I do this with my son. So when he starts to go into a tantrum mode, the question is, is a grumpy monkey coming? And I can sort of see as you're describing, because yeah, that's me approaching him. Like I'm starting to talk to him about what's going on. Like, even though it's just verbal and it's not physical, it's like, is the grumpy monkey coming? So like, he's actually going into a state and I'm approaching. Um, And then from there, it's like, we start coming up with tactics for how we're going to combat the grumpy monkey as a third entity between him and I securely attached with this, you know, um, this thing that's coming, which was a great piece of advice. Well, the really interesting part of that, that's so cool. I just love that is that like, so one of the things that we teach in terms of tools for how to like 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 reorient your reorient or reprogram yourself to become secure is somatic processing. And somatic processing means witnessing your emotions. And like I think we think sometimes that if I'm triggered, for example, and then I call my friend a bunch of times or you know whatever the behavior is when you're triggered, that that's my way of soothing. But like the actual root of soothing first has to be ultimate presence with your emotions. And it has to be that you are able to witness and observe your emotions, not take them on, identify with them and then act through them. And so it's interesting because what I hear in that that's really, really powerful is that you're essentially teaching your son to be the witness of his emotions by actually observing the grumpy monkey, maybe what the sensations are, what the experience is like. And so rather than identifying, there's going to be that space around it, which as you know, is, is a meditative practice as well. Yeah. It's, um, and there's lots of fun <laughs> navigating it that way as well. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you touched on a word and I'm conscious we're literally on the cusp of going into the three, um, insecure types of attachments, but just before we do, um, you're, you were talking, you mentioned the word interdependence and this really dropped in for me, um, over the weekend, actually, I was, um, away at a retreat and it was quite profound. It was actually the theme of the entire meditation retreat for me was interdependence. Um, is it, I don't want to use this word, but it's what's coming through right now is, is it a bit of the whole, like is interdependence the holy grail of, you know, relationships, like positive relationships? Um, I'll explain where my process was at, um, at the risk of oversharing. Um, but for me, I was, I went into my retreat with the intention of integrity, um, and just learning to, you know, try and build more integrity. And one of the drop-ins that I got as I was observing my process was, oh, 
actually am pretty good at my integrity. Like I, when I say things to myself, I do them. It's mostly with others that I don't really communicate effectively. Um, and it's like, oh, it's mostly with others that you find you wish you had more integrity. And I was like, okay, so what's going on in that space? And it's like, well, you don't really have healthy boundaries, um, Amrit. You give a lot um, and you take a lot and, you know, it's just like this big, sloshy sea of stuff um you know you expect because you give you know um and that was quite a profound awareness for me which was like okay again healthy boundaries really helpful to install but I also had this visualization of like what healthy boundaries looked like and I was like see here you are and here they are and here's this really beautiful transactional space between you and it doesn't have to be this really transactional sounds very capitalistic it just felt like breath you know, it was just like, this is a space to breathe between the two of you. And can you see that from this point, if anything needs to be communicated out there and anything from out there needs to be communicated in here, then, you know, there's the space for a realization of, you know, this is, that would be, that would enhance more integrity and Allah, you know, this is what interdependence really feels like. It was a really great process, um, touch wood to go through for myself, um, but yeah, realizing that interdependence was this whole body of work, but also really provides you with, again, I'm going out on a bit of a leap, um, a bit of a backbone to really stand in and around relationships and boundaries because it's like ah, interdependence. Like I'm dependent on myself and naturally I'm going to need others to get things done. Um, but finding that space between the individual and the other, is it a bit of the Holy Grail um, of relationship theory or is it, Am I evangelizing it too hard? You are. You. It's a huge part. And so we talk about how there's six things to become securely attached, your core wounds, learning your needs, learning to communicate your needs, learning to get in your body and be embodied, aka somatic processing. And then we have boundaries and, and behaviors. So um, this is like those are, that's a huge component. I would say it's kind of like, because it touches on the boundaries and the communication, it's kind of one third, arguably it even goes into your needs. Um, may I share feedback about you? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I would totally, you know, okay. So one of the first things is as a fearful avoidant, because I've worked through so much of these things over the years is you're still out of integrity to yourself if you're not being honest with boundaries, right? So even though, um, you feel, okay, I'm pretty integrity to my integrity to myself. Yes. Maybe when you're on your own, maybe when you're able to control what you're going to do, like go to the gym, you said you were going to go to the gym or do work. You said, you know, but I find that for fearful avoidance and part of the like recovery process is that it's so scary to ask for your needs and to really share what your truth is for people. Because if you grew up in a childhood where that wasn't available, your subconscious has been conditioned to assume automatic rejection. And so we lose integrity usually as fearful avoidance the moment we're around other people. And we start operating by something called covert contracts, which covert contracts are basically poison. (laughs) So we think, okay, I'm going to do five things for you. And I'm going to think, okay, now you owe me one thing. So then I, it's almost like you, you are over generous and then you think, okay, now I've done so much that I can ask for something back and not feel so unsafe about it. And you know, what we lose in doing that is we lose the ability to actually share our truth, actually speak up, actually be vulnerable, which is a huge part of effective boundary setting. And when we don't share our boundaries and, and our needs with others openly, then we usually feel unseen and unheard. And when somebody can't meet the expectation, 
we often feel let down by our relationships, even if people really love us because they don't have the information that they need to be able to support us because we're not sharing it in real time. So that's like one of the biggest places of healing for sure. And yes, it leads to, to interdependency. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much for calling that out. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's, it's tender. It's really tender. I love that. Thank you so much. That's really, yeah, powerful to hear. And the covert contracts thing is profound because absolutely I see, you know, it's like give, 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 and then eventually receive. It's totally like an operating system um, for the fearful avoidant hand up in the air. Um, and so in there, the interesting piece as well is I've tried in the past to communicate my needs verbally uh, vulnerably but then also when people are used to you being someone that's always got it all the time when you start to come from a place of vulnerability doesn't really land um, for the other person as effectively any advice and tips on how to communicate your needs effectively um, without coming across as a victim um, and something that's completely new and novel Um, yeah so I think the best way is always to share the need. Like we, we talk about different stops on the train when it comes to communication and this may apply less to you. I know you're doing a lot of work, but for, you know, somebody who's really new to it, um, the, yeah, the first stop on the train is always try to communicate in real time because that's hard. But even if you're doing 60, 70% of that, we don't stew and then get frustrated and then come back later on. And then oh, yeah. a- allow the, allow the pressure in the cooker to build up before you start yeah. screaming. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Places, right? And it so I get people. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'll stop in a minute. You talk. <laughs> totally good. And so, so we check there first. The next stop on the train we check in with is: Are you communicating in the positive? So there is a huge difference in being heard. And this probably isn't you, but this may be a lot of other people. There's a huge difference between going, "You never do the dishes," versus, "Hey, I really need some support. Can you take a turn doing the dishes?" So communicate in the positive. What you want, not what you're frustrated didn't happen. Then the next stop on the train is because a lot of like when people, when it doesn't land, it's actually that we just haven't been taught to communicate effectively. So the next stop on the train is, um, are you communicating in a way that's clear and specific? So a lot of people would come into me and my practice in cu- with couples and we'd be like, okay, your partner needs more support. Go support them this week. They come back. The partner would be like, my partner didn't support me at all this week. And the person would, the other partner would go, what do you mean? I I took the garbage out every day. And they would go, I needed you to hug me. I needed you to be present with me. So, So support looks different for different people. So I always say, okay, get clear and specific and paint a picture for what it looks like to you. And then the last stop on the train is if people are, if it's not landing, don't be afraid to see your needs through. Don't be afraid. You know, I practice communicating. If somebody doesn't hear me in real time and it's important to me, like somebody in a close relationship, not like a a sort of stranger, I'll go to that person. I'll say, hey, before we move on from this discussion, can we go back to that? I don't think you really heard me or understood where I was coming from. This is important to me. What I really need. That sounds so hard to say for the fearful (laughs) avoidant. Oh my God, all my stuff's coming up. Sorry, you go on. And so, you know, and I will say, you know how I said there's six things to become secure. One of them is core wounds. It's hard for us to do that if we have core wounds first. So if we have a wound that's like, if I'm vulnerable, I'll be rejected. If I'm vulnerable, um, I am weak. If I'm vulnerable, I will be helpless if I try to rely on someone else. Like if we have those core wounds, we have to recondition those things first using the auto-suggestion tool so that we get them out of our way and it doesn't feel so scary. Um, So we actually start there. But once we can recondition these limiting beliefs we have, like sometimes it's like, oh, if I ask for something, it'll be a burden. 
Or if I ask for something, I'll be, you know, disliked or I'll, you know, so we have these like fears first, we recondition the fears first, and then we practice the communication second and it doesn't feel so scary or so heavy. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for sharing that. And we've unconsciously sort of tapped into the fearful avoidant. Um, is there more you wanted to share about the fearful avoidant? Yeah. Because then we can yeah. sort of check through the, the three different types of insecure. <laughs> this is such a good conversation. Um, we, can't, we can't finish one thing without all these yeah. new things popping up, which is great. Yeah. Um, so, so the three other attachment styles for anybody who's not familiar are anxious, preoccupied. And in a way, I kind of think is the AP is like on one end of the continuum. And then we have the dismissive avoidant on the other. And then we have the fearful avoidant in a way in the middle. And we'll talk about why. So the anxious preoccupied um, tends to be the one who essentially has a lot of inconsistency in childhood. And so there can be like a real abandonment for an anxious person, like a parent leaving, not coming back or a divorce, and then they don't see another parent. Or there can just be that the parents are really warm and loving, but they work all the time. And so they're always with their grandparents. So for in, in whichever way, you know how earlier we talked about repetition and emotion is what programs well, they get this repetition and emotion of perceived abandonment because love is there, it's pulled away. Love is there, it's pulled away. So this child grows up to really fear abandonment, fear being alone, and they don't get this ability to individuate because they deal with you know, this fear of abandonment by, by coping through trying to maintain proximity, trying to stay as close as possible. And so as a child, this person grows up and they become the person who is um, constantly clinging on to relationships, even if they're not healthy ones, afraid to be alone, they really don't develop a relationship to themselves and they struggle to individuate. And they spend a lot of their time people pleasing and trying to be included and loved. And they have big exclusion core wounds and dislike rejection core wounds and abandonment core wounds. Um, and it's very easy to heal and solve for, but it's really painful for APs to be the attachment style they are because when they have this like anxious response and they cling or they call a bunch or they text or anything like that, you know, I think that they feel like, Oh, what, you know, I shouldn't be doing this, but they can't help it. Right. The conscious and subconscious are going two different directions. And it's actually a trauma response. It's actually when they're in that state, their, their nervous system is all dysregulated. They're actually in a trauma response. So that's the anxious preoccupied. And then the fearful avoidant will go into, they have this other side that they share with the dismissive. So um, they have the avoidant side and the fearful avoidant generally grows up in a household where there's a lot of chaos, a lot of walking on eggshells, um, sometimes a lot of broken promises. The best sort of analogy I often give for fearful avoidance, and this is not the only case for FAs, but it's a common one, is let's say that a fearful avoidant has a parent who's an alcoholic. And so let's say one day, let's pretend it's mom. One day mom comes home and mom is drinking and she's really angry and she's really scary. Another day mom comes home and she's drinking and she's really happy and she's in a great mood and she's fun. And another day mom's sobering up and she's really grumpy. And another day she's, you know, sobering up and, and it's been a few days and she feels really guilty and she's being kind. It's like, you never know what you're going to get. And so that's sort of the analogy that encompasses the fearful avoidance childhood, whether it's a lot of fighting in the home, whether there's, you know, a lot of moving around, you know, or just like any form of kind of abuse that's taking place direct or indirectly, it's creating chaos, walking on eggshells and 
not really knowing how to trust or really build an attachment bond. And so the fearful avoidant becomes hypervigilant where they constantly read between the lines. They constantly pick up on micro expressions, body language, changes in behavior. And this is their coping mechanism to try to figure out how to deal with their, their environment. And so as a result of that, they struggle to trust. They struggle to let their guard down. They struggle to be vulnerable, to share what they really need with other people. <laughs> Some of what we were talking about. And they still have the anxious side. So, you know, the fearful wins the hot and cold partner. It's like, you know, I joke with people. It's like, oh, come close, come close. And then you're close and it's like, wait, get away, get back. And <laughs> like can't decide. And so they, they have a lot of this like intermittent reinforcement where they'll be really warm, really loving, but especially because they can be boundaryless and get burnt out easily, they also can withdraw and kind of fall off the map. So they have these like strong polarities and fearful avoidance spend a lot of time when they're in relationships with people being like, should I stay or should I go? And that usually isn't the case in like longer lasting relationships, but um, it's definitely like an early stage relationship challenge they go through and they don't often let themselves get seen by other people. And the last thing I'll say about this, not to go on for too long, is just fearful avoidance also operate through codependency and enmeshment where usually they, they got love from their caregivers in childhood by doing things for them. So if you imagine that alcoholic parent, they usually like, you know, tucked mom into bed and then got the pat on the head and got love in that case. So a lot of fearful avoidance actually are kind of like this, this conditioning, they have this conditioning or programming to build one-way relationships where they like give to get love, but they don't know how to express themselves in terms of what they need and they struggle to receive. And so eventually they can feel like relationships are this one-way kind of connection. So before I go to DA, do you want to say anything about any of that? The AP well, or FA? Yeah, well, the AP was really interesting as well. Both were really interesting, but one of the, circling back to, in, to do it in sequel chronological order, um, yeah, I couldn't help but feel like the AP, um, the anxious preoccupied, a little bit of that was, and maybe I'm just being quick to blame, but um, just given capitalism, the way that it's structured, you know, and maybe I'm just, again, being the fearful of one, hypervigilant <laughs> to the point. Um, but, you know, I watch so many of our parents around me sending their kids to daycare and, you know, like five days a week. And it's like, that's not a judgment, but it's just, that's what they need to do to make their life work, to maintain their mortgages, et cetera, et cetera. It takes two incomes to support a household, which it didn't, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And I'm just seeing like that abandonment core wound, you know, it's, I just feel like, you know, you said, you know, it used to be 50-50 and maybe, you know, society's changed a bit. I heard that echoing a little bit when you were talking about the abandonment um, for the anxious preoccupied because, yeah, I just look around and I'm just seeing parents trying to do the best that they can, but they can't always be there given the structure of what 3D living looks like in today's society. So that was just a sentiment that was, um, yeah, echoing around in the back of my head. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that for the anxious preoccupied. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's the recipe to build an anxious preoccupied. And it's sad because to your point, like when people don't have options, that's them doing the best that they can. And I, the other choices might be not to work and then to struggle and feel financially stressed. And that's going to bleed into the parent child relationship in its own ways. Like, you know, there's sort of these dynamics where there's so many external pressures. And I think there's a lot about our world right now. You know, there's a lot more division than usual. Unfortunately, I think the mainstream media is not very helpful for that. There's a lot of, you know, 
just stress with inflation, with, you know, so many different financial pressures. And then there's a lack of resources for people. I really believe like, thank goodness there's more and more things kind of popping up, but you know, nobody learns about attachment and parenting in school. We're struggling with learning about financial literacy and our taxes. We don't learn about a lot of different things in regards to how to manage our emotions. I mean, I, I could probably go too far down the rabbit hole. So I'll try to. No, <laughs> it's great. Track, it's, yeah, it's all there's, there's yeah. a hard hand that everybody's being given right now with a, a lack of resources in the process. And so thank goodness some people are coming to places like your podcast to gain these resources and different forms and learn, but there's definitely like a lot of pressure and a lot of challenge and then not very much learning to help to compensate with the the pressure or support against it. Um, but, you know, yes, that would definitely be the recipe for anxious, preoccupied attachment cell. But I will just say as a glimmer of hope, like um, if you know, we have a parent who comes home and let's say they're the parent listening to this right now. And they're saying, you know what? Oh my gosh, I have to put my kids in daycare all the time. When you come home, you still have this power of repetition and emotion. So if you are present with your child, then you let the child know as they get older, because our attachment self forms between zero to two, but we have neuroplasticity. It changes. It can change because of big changes in circumstances, but we can also move towards secure. So if you can tell your child every day, like, I'm not going anywhere. I miss you when you go to school. I think about you. I care about you. If you can do that, then they're going to learn that language and it's going to help them see that it's okay to have that space, but that they have that security with the parents. So it's not like all hope is lost. There's definitely things that we can do to counteract from repetition and emotion on the other side. I love that. And then what was present for me um, in the the fearful avoidant, which obviously there's so much present for me in that space, um, Touchwood was, yeah, as you were sharing, I was recognizing the, um, yeah, just the, the interesting Scott, like, like landscape that the fearful avoidant has for when it comes to feeling, because it's like when you're triggered and, you know, you feel so much, but when you're not, there's actually like a, well, from my experience has been that there's like a numbness and you were saying like, you know, that when you said your, your inability to receive, um, and that, that really struck a chord because there is like, you know, you're, you're walking around, you're just like doing, 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 giving, 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 giving. And then it's like the expectation exists and then you receive and it's, or you don't receive and then you're triggered and then you feel so much. And prior to that, you weren't feeling much at all. And there's like this really, it's just a really, um, I don't want to use the word all or nothing corrupted but yeah i want to say like misconstrued sort of emotional landscape for the fearful avoidant i would say um and yes i very much identify with all or nothingness and i sort of pride myself on that to a fault i guess touch wood <laughs> but yeah the um yeah very interesting this landscape that is the fearful avoidant mm. Definitely, definitely. And a lot of the the reprogramming and healing is around like the core wounds and the fears and then the needs. And anyways, we'll come back to that. So the last one for everybody, if anybody's been waiting for this one is the, the dismissive avoidant attachment style. So dismissive avoidance, um, you know, second to fearful avoidance are about as much often the attachment style that people are trying to learn about the most and understand because a lot of people have partners who are DA and it, it can be confusing to be with, you know, any of the insecure attachment styles. Um, but maybe particularly dismissive avoidance. So dismissive avoidance, they grew up in a household where there is neglect. This can be overt neglect or this can be covert neglect. So this can be like food's not on the table, parents are never around, like clear neglect, or the vast majority of the time it's quiet neglect. It's that food's on the table, structure and order, but there's a lack of attunement, which is almost invisible, right? Like it's hard to see that. 
And um, there's a lack of being able to talk about emotions. So there's no like, oh, if the child's upset, they come home from school. There's no, hey, I can tell you're upset what's going on. There's no emotional availability or communication. So there's basically like a stunted growth that takes place in terms of this child building this ability to feel like they can rely on others, develop emotional literacy of any kind to talk about their feelings or their emotions or their needs. Um, And sometimes in a lot of cases, actually, you'll see dismissive avoidance also um, shamed or, or criticized or punished a little bit for expressing emotion. And so they get all this negative reinforcement and negative conditioning to go, okay, I should just you know, bury my head in the sand when it comes to my emotions, repress my emotions, distance myself as much as I can from them. Because every time I try to connect emotionally or express emotions to to caregivers, they don't hear me. They reject it anyways. I have a lot of stories of clients. Maybe something's wrong with that. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And that's the exact belief that they make up of it. Because a child, when we're all wired biologically for attunement, when we don't get that, the child can't go, oh, my caregiver is emotionally unavailable. So the child goes, oh, there must be something wrong with me. And so this child as a DA, they actually grow up to have really bad shame wounds. And they'll they'll try to compensate for these shame wounds by like keeping people away from them so they can't see them. A lot of people will report to me, well, if they see me, they might find out that something's actually wrong with me or something's not right. And I had so many DA clients over the years who would say things like, I actually remember, Thais, now that we're talking about this, being a child at four years old, five years old, and wanting care emotionally from my parents. And I'd come home from school and I'd try to engage with them somehow, but didn't know how to articulate what I was hoping for. And it just kept feeling like I was invisible. Like it just kept feeling like there wasn't space for that. And so this person adapts to say, okay, I'm going to get relief from this pain and this heartache by just literally pushing my emotions down, becoming more of this person who just thinks logically. And and so as an adult, this person is terrified of being that vulnerable to somebody again. And so they tend to fear commitment. They tend to really not want to be vulnerable, not want to be seen or not want to be known when you know, connection and relationships does get deeper, they may walk away all of a sudden and it can kind of confuse the other partner or they may really pull back. Um, and they get a lot of like vulnerability hangovers, right? They'll get a lot of, you know, they open up and they're like, oh no, what did I do? And and, and what they're feeling is those shame wounds that, that usually haven't been resolved yet. Wow. So there's a, you've got the anxious preoccupied of one end of the spectrum, which is all about abandonment, and you've got dismissive avoidant at the other end of the spectrum, which is all about neglect, is kind of what I'm picking up. And fearing being trapped. Yeah, fearing being trapped or or shamed for something. Those are like the big DA core wounds. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because from the surface, from the outside looking in, abandonment and neglect don't look like two very different things, but they're quite seismic in when you start rabbiting down and describing two very different people when you're talking about anxious, preoccupied and dismissive avoidant. Yes. And part of why that happens is because if you look at the, you know how we talked earlier about how like if you're a parent, you don't have to be perfect. It's like your batting average. Like if you're 80% present, because all of our conditioning exists sort of in this like, like, polar space where it's like negative versus positive associations and the weight of it. So if you imagine for an anxious preoccupied, they get this perceived abandonment, but when the parents are around, they get a lot of positive emotional associations to connection. And so they actually like are yearning for connection. They see connection as a good thing, 
and being vulnerable is a good thing and something that gets their needs met, although it's taken away sometimes. So then they starve for it. If neglect is constant and pervasive, there's not many positive emotional associations to connection. And so what ends up happening is the DA actually rejects connection itself as a subconscious strategy of feeling relief from that neglect. And so if what it balances is like the ratio essentially is like more negative emotional associations about vulnerability and emotional connection than positive. And so that's what creates this, like, like you said, seismic difference between the two is actually based on like one person really wants connection. The other person really is trying to stay away from it because they associate it with more negatives. Got it. I will put a link. I think this is the perfect juncture to throw this in here. I will put a link in the very first link in the show notes below, um, whether on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you're tuning in from, um, your favorite podcast platform, cheesy sort of plug. Uh, <laughs> uh, the link, the first link in the top of wherever you're listening will be the um, the quiz to go get um, oh, nice. your, yeah, yeah on, um, on Taze's yeah. website. Um, so you can actually do the quiz and find out what your attachment style is. Um, I'm, co- I'm conscious that most people tuning in to this podcast are pretty woke. Um, you would probably be able to discern what you are just by listening. Um, but then you might sort of say, you might, I think it's still worth doing the quiz just to sort of find out um, exactly what you are. Cause you know, for me initially, I was like, oh, am I anxious, preoccupied or fearful of work? I could relate to both. And I did the quiz and I was like, mate you're fearful avoidant and there's stuff in there that you can work on and so the quiz the link to the quiz is in there um feel free to go check that out and from that point um once you've done the quiz i guess that's where i'd like to ask this next question because you've sort of discussed we've discussed the different types um but then you've mentioned the word attunement a lot as you've gone through this podcast it is a word that i am especially when it comes to nervous system type sort of stuff recently i've also been very present to thanks to just where the podcast has been um, we had Thomas Hubel on recently as well. That was a, he wrote a book called In Tune. Um, but yeah, the the attunement. How do we? Is it a one size fits all approach for coming back to secure attachment um, behaviors, or is it different for each of the different individual ones? How do we like? How do we improve our attunement? Um, and how do we heal? Are we trying to all become more securely attached? Can you explain that yeah. process and that journey? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the first things is like you can sort of hear the different core wounds that we talked about. So for anxious preoccupied, so our big ones are abandonment, being alone, excluded, rejected, disliked, FAs, being um, betrayed, um, being unsafe, um, being trapped, also being abandoned is a big one. So they share sort of the avoidant and anxious side. Um, dismissive avoidance, being unsafe, being weak if they are vulnerable, being defective, um, or um, being trapped or helpless as well. And so there's these big core wounds for each one. And we, the first place, it's the best place to start with is reconditioning the core wounds, reprogramming them because they define so many of our behaviors and they also are responsible for why each attachment cell gets so triggered and then resorts to like pulling away or pushing away or all the things that we do. And so the first thing is we can actually use that auto-suggestion tool that we talked about earlier. At the beginning um, of the podcast, where... now we're back to the beginning of the podcast. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, where you engage repetition and emotion and imagery to oppose that core wound with 10 pieces of evidence a day for 21 days. And we can see a lot of movement on those core wounds really quickly. And they stop us from seeing the world through the lens of our subconscious, which is usually the lens of how we were parented as children and, and what we project onto our adult romantic relationships. So core wound reprogramming is huge. 
The second thing is learning our needs. So learning, you know, what the big needs are that we have. Um, that may be like a longer topic, but at a very high level, anxious preoccupieds tend to need certainty. They need connection. They need validation. They need reassurance. Um, fearful avoidance tend to need novelty. They need freedom. They need autonomy and they need depth of connection and transparency. Transparency is how fearful avoidance rebuild trust. It's a really big thing. Um, dismissible avoidance, they need their freedom, their autonomy, their independence. They need to be understood as they are and they need acceptance and empathy. And so when we can understand our core needs in our relationship dynamics and we can communicate them, this is how we can get seen. And like we talked about earlier, if you are scared of communicating, then work on the core wounds first. Cause usually the, you know, the DA is scared to communicate because they're scared to be weak or the fearful avoidance scared to communicate because they're scared to be, you know, helpless if they rely too much on other people or, you know, so that's where those things kind of go in that order. And then the last thing we can really work on, if we were going to just simplify the three key things to, to take away, the last thing would be nervous system regulation. So it's great to take up a habit like, um, meditation, mindfulness, breath work, something on a daily basis, because all three insecure attachment styles, they too easily orient into sympathetic nervous system mode. So fight or flight, freeze or fawn. And so, you know, having a daily habit where we're reconditioning our body and we are getting embodied and we're learning to witness our emotions. We're learning to actually feel what's going on in our body helps us get back in touch with ourselves and attune to ourselves. And the beautiful part about that is all three of the insecure attachment styles on some level struggled with attunement, whether it was the AP with it being inconsistent, the FA with it being too one way, um, or the DA with it being really neglected. Attunement is us. When we do that with ourselves, we are giving to ourselves what we couldn't gain access to as children. And so what we're essentially doing is we're becoming our parent in the relationship to ourselves. And it sounds kind of cliche, but it's like, that's how we heal is to give to ourselves what we couldn't get access to. And so as we do that work, those three big things, the core wounds, the needs, the nervous system regulation and attunement to self, that gives us this really strong foundation to then bring those things into our interdependent relationships. Man, I love you. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much for sharing that. One of the interesting pieces on the, um, on the, that was so clearly laid out. That was so clearly laid out. Thank you so much for that. One of the interesting pieces for the third point that you mentioned as well, which is attunement of our nervous system. And this continues to blow me away, which is these traumas are like, they feel like when we're tuning into them, um, that they're all like in our psyche, you know, it just, it just, I don't know why it just, I'm, I know that practically from, oh, that's something in my psyche. But when it comes to the nervous system, it's so counterintuitive yet it's so profound because it's so easy to spend some time meditating doing some yin yoga doing some breath work because you actually don't have to go down this rabbit hole into your psyche to uncover and work with stuff you can just be physically present to yourself through the practice of something physical and it actually helps your psyche along in such like a profound palpable way um, and that continues to blow me away just the profundity of the nervous system and what it's doing for you and how it's best accessed in my humble opinion from what I'm learning through teachers such as yourself um, that it's a physical thing that supports so much of your mental and emotional and spiritual well-being but it's actually like a fundamental to come back to your physical well-being um, and that 
is kind of cool because it's not as intimidating, right? It's like, oh, just spend some time sitting doing, doing some Wim Hof for like 11 minutes in Wim Hof breath work every day for the rest of your little, you know, however long you're willing to commit to this, um, you know, is beautiful. Like it's, it's 11 minutes. Like it's not, and you feel different, like in your state change. It's yeah. I'm just in awe of the way you just like articulated that so clearly and just, yeah, like, you know, we've been able to go do the quiz, you'll find your core, your core wounds and learning to reprogram them, like through some of the stuff we discussed earlier. And like I said, there's a myriad of stuff. I encourage people to check out your channel to find out more how to do that. Um, and then identifying our core needs and, you know, being able to label that as, you know, the ability to be seen. And this is what I would really need to be seen and then finding what that is for your different type of, um, yeah, attachment style. And then, yeah, the nervous system regulation stuff is, you know, come back into your body. Um, yeah, it all sounds really really approachable and really doable considering how much these programs run our lives definitely definitely thank you <laughs> Thais, i will definitely put a link like i said for everybody to go get their quiz sorted out uh <laughs> to get their attachment style identified um in the show notes below but i have to say i will link your um, youtube channel as well there is an abundance of resources um, on there for anybody that's curious about this work and for me as a content creator I just you know want to take a moment to just really shine the light on you acknowledge you because it's yeah like your entire body of work is completely service oriented and it's just it's it gives so much um, and it's so practical and so useful and I'm just yeah really I'm going to use the word impressed. <laughs> I'm really impressed by um, how much you've really just developed on the um, personal development school and just how much you offer the world um, through that. It's really inspiring for me and it inspires my evolution. And yeah, I want to thank you for today's conversation, but I reckon that's just, you know, pales in comparison to like, obviously you going to do the work on yourself, you know, as being a fearful avoidant, finding all your own stuff, unpicking, spending years and years and years and years and years as those of us that know it takes to clarify something into its purest, simplest form. <laughs> We've uh, whittled away at it for a while. So I just want to honor you and thank you for, you know, you and your journey and you being you, man. Thank you so much for sharing yourself so abundantly. Thank you today. so much. And you're incredible. This is one of my favorite podcasts I've ever been on and the work you're doing to, to share and that you shared so many amazing things on here i was like i loved the one with your son um mm. so I, I really really enjoyed this this conversation and and uh, really grateful for the work that you're doing in the world as well thank you so much Tai. thank you thank you so much for tuning into this amazing episode of the inspired evolution without you the inspired evolution tribe this podcast would not be what it is today Thank you so much for your love and your support. Thank you so much for being so inspired to evolve. It's truly inspiring. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Inspired Evolution on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution's video podcast. We release inspiring conversations such as this every week, along with guided meditations and empowering insights all designed to help you grow and evolve. Honestly, your subscription on YouTube to the channel helps us out a great deal. And one of the other benefits, if you're having any insights or shifts from these episodes that you want to chat about, or if you'd like to leave myself or the guest a message, please do so in the comments on YouTube. I truly look forward to hearing from you. And as always, Tribe, remember to stay inspired and keep evolving.
imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.